Every church throughout history, past or present, throughout the centuries, whether in the east or the west, north or south, from Australia to America, whether in Korea or Kenya, ministers to one type of person on this side of eternity. Can you guess? Sinners. Redeemed sinners, repentant sinners, spiritually mature sinners, spiritually immature sinners, growing sinners, and of course, backsliding, unrepentant sinners. What do you do with them? Every church is full of people in the pews that are in a lifelong struggle with sin. That's the reality of living in this fallen world. But thanks be to God, because of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the elect of God, the chosen of God, we have been forgiven and freed from our sins by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we are set apart as his redeemed and regenerate people, his bride, his church. Nevertheless, although local churches should affirm and recognize only the converted into church membership at times, churches will wrongly admit false converts. Not only that, true Christians will get caught up in sin. Your churches will both have Judas's, hypocrites, and Peter's, repentant, in its membership roster. Hence, this is why if our churches are to display the glory of God in God's salvific work of sinful men and women as the new covenant people of God, church discipline, a biblical response to unrepentant sin, is good and necessary and a biblical practice in the local church in order to preserve, protect, and promote the holiness and purity of the church. We're continuing our series, Rediscovered Church, guided by the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, and we're studying through each chapter of the book in our three-part topical sermon series to consider the what and the who the Bible says the church is. And this afternoon, we'll be asking the overarching question, is church discipline really loving? Just as a disclaimer, much of what I will share is directly based on the book from chapter 6 of the book of the same title, Rediscovered Church. And I wanted to encourage you all to pick up a copy, read it for yourself, share it with friends and family who are struggling to see why the church is essential. Now, I want to emphasize again that the normal weekly preaching you will find here at New Covenant Baptist Church will be expository preaching, expository preaching which can be defined preaching in which the main point of the passage becomes the main point of the sermon being preached, uh, because we believe that that is the best way God's people can be taught the Scripture for the preacher of God's word to expose and explain God's word to his hearers, verse by verse, book by book. So looking forward to being back in John's gospel starting next Sunday to finish our study. Uh, We'll start back up in John chapter 18 uh, starting next week. Uh, But today, as I shared, we are finishing part two of our topical sermon series to help our young church consider the what and who the Bible says the church is. And brothers and sisters, I pray that these messages have been helpful and encouraging to you as our church forges toward biblical faithfulness. Uh, If you are here and you are not a Christian, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We've been praying for you. We believe, uh, as the Scripture teaches, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So thank you so much for being here uh, to hear God's Word, and we pray that the words you hear will be an encouragement to you this afternoon. If the topic of our discussion today, church discipline, uh, seems a bit overwhelming and heavy, Just know it's because our God is a holy God. That means he is unlike any other being in this world. Uh, It means that he is entirely set apart from this broken, fallen world. 
Yet, the truth of the matter is, this God, this holy, righteous God, did not leave us abandoned in this world. Unlike every other religion in this world, the God of the universe did not leave it up to us and our own good works to work our way up to God. Rather, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to rise again on our behalf so that we would have a way to oneness with God. Amen? Maybe for you, it sounds too good to be true. But that's why we call it the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that this message will point you to our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a friend of sinners and welcomes all, every single person who will call to him and trust in him today. Now, I understand, uh, even for Christians among us, particularly if you are new to our church, although very much biblical, the topic of church discipline may be foreign to you, may be new to you. Well, in my opinion, there is no other subject more controversial, more debated, and a topic more difficult in ecclesiology in understanding what the church is according to the Bible than the topic of church discipline. And for those reasons, such subject matter requires carefulness and clarity. So I want you to listen very, very carefully so that you could understand what I am teaching based on Scripture. So how should we understand and practice church discipline that displays God's glory in the local church. To think about the topic, I want us to lead us in asking seven questions, seven questions of church discipline. Let's dive right in. Question one, what is church discipline? Question one, what is church discipline? Church discipline can be defined as this. I'll repeat it a couple times so that you can get it. Church discipline can be defined as the church's act, church's act of confronting a church member's sin and calling them to repent, which if the person doesn't repent, will culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of significant, verifiable, unrepentant sin. Let me repeat that again. Church discipline is a church's act of confronting a church member's sin and calling them to repent, which if the person does not repent, will culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of significant, verifiable, unrepentant sin. If you did not catch that, you could just... Listen to the sermon recording later. In the broadest sense, church discipline is one aspect of Christian discipleship. Notice that the words disciple and discipline are etymological cousins. Both words are taken from the realm of education, which involves teaching and correction. So it's common to understand church discipline in two different ways, formative church discipline and corrective church discipline. Formative discipline refers to teaching. It's leading people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction, through the regular and ordinary means of preaching, discipleship, Bible studies, accountability, and gathering like today, right now, like what we're doing for corporate worship. All these are examples of formative discipline. These activities shape the way we grow, and they help prevent serious risk of false teaching, public scandal, contentiousness, and a host of other spiritual maladies. God uses formative discipline to deter sin that would require corrective discipline. Now, if we're to compare discipline in the body of Christ to discipline in the physical body, 
then formative discipline would be like eating right and exercising, whereas corrective discipline, on the other hand, would be like surgery to correct something that's gone wrong in the body so that more serious injury doesn't result. Uh, It's correcting error and sin in a believer's life so that more worse harm is prevented. What would you think of a coach who instructs his player but never drills them? Or a math teacher who explains the lesson but never corrects her students' mistakes? Or a doctor who merely talks about health but ignores cancer? You would probably say that all of them are doing only half of their job. Athletic training requires instructing and drilling. Teaching requires explaining and correcting. Doctoring requires encouraging health and fighting disease. Parenting requires instruction and timeouts or at times spanking. Well, what about a church that teaches and disciples but doesn't practice church discipline? It just simply wouldn't make sense, would it? Church history shows evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians in the past always tended to practice biblical church discipline regularly and normally. This is not a new idea at all. In fact, many reformers consider church discipline as one of the marks of a true church, along with the right preaching of the Word and the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. This is what a true church is. This is what a true church does. So again, in the broad sense... Making disciples involves both teaching and correcting formative and corrective discipline. As Jonathan Lehman, a friend of our congregation, says, to be discipled is, among other things, to be disciplined. To be discipled is, among other things, to be disciplined. And as a Christian is disciplined through instruction and correction, so in short, discipline is just another way of describing the discipleship process. Discipline is just another way of describing the discipleship process. Hence, discipline is about growth. Likewise, church discipline ultimately leads to church growth, just as pruning a rosebush leads to more roses. More narrowly, however, corrective discipline refers to the act of a church formally excluding someone who professes to be a Christian but remains in unrepentant sin from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Typically, this is what people mean when they talk about church discipline or excommunication. It means literally excommunioning. The fact of the matter is, if you want to do church membership right, you have to do church discipline. They are two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. If you want to do church membership right, you have to have church discipline on the other side. More specifically, if membership involves affirming a profession of faith, discipline in its final stage means removing that affirmation, again, because of unrepented, verifiable, and significant sin. We're going to talk about three of those categories in just a few minutes. So moving on to the next but more important question, question two, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about church discipline? What does the Bible say about church discipline? Discipline, as you would guess, admittedly, is not a happy word to most people. The word, even the thought of it, naturally causes an aversion to some. Whether it refers to the correction of another or the control of oneself, discipline just seems a little bit overly counterculturally restrictive. Especially for us living in the 21st century, the thought of church discipline excommunicating somebody may seem a bit or maybe even highly offensive to you. 
But we must understand church discipline, again, is not man's idea. It's not New Covenant Baptist Church's idea. It's not James Choi's idea. It's God's idea. It's a biblical idea. Many passages in the Bible addresses discipline, but I'll share a few of the most important ones. Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there if you have a Bible with you on page 1008. Look at verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now put a finger mark or something there because we're going to return to that passage. But in these verses, we see that God himself disciplines us and we'll see that he also commands us to do the same for one another. You see, because the local church has a special responsibility and has a special competence in this regard. We saw two Sundays ago talking about church membership and we learned how Jesus grants local congregations, local churches, the authority to discipline their own in Matthew 16, verses 16 through 19 and Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. He gives the church the power of the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. It's first mentioned in Matthew 16, 18 and these keys are handed to the local congregations in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And these keys of the kingdom that binds and looses is not talking, again, about some spiritual power you are unleashing from heaven. It's talking about membership and discipline. And as you consider the context, what other explanation is there but membership and discipline? Now turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Let's look at this passage one more time. We looked at it two weeks ago. Matthew 18 is found on page 823 of the Blue Bibles. And in verses 15 through 20 is what we'll look at. Well, in this passage, Jesus teaches us how to deal with those in sin in our churches. But as I was studying this passage this week, I learned something so encouraging. Again, another reason why context is so crucial. You can't just take out a passage and study it for its own. You've got to study the context. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 is the primary passage for church discipline. But have you noticed what these verses follow? Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It's talking about how Jesus is the good shepherd and how the good shepherd will leave the 99 sheep in a flock to pursue the one stray sheep. Well, how does the shepherd pursue the one stray sheep? Jesus answers in verses 15 through 20. Now, to emphasize this point, about five or so years ago, a Christian song called Reckless Love was released and became a mega hit and sung by churches all over the world, disregarding the fact that this song is highly promoting of expressive self-individualism, not to mention it is deeply flawed theologically. Nevertheless, the song is so popular, I thought it would be worth a mention. The lyrics of the chorus and the bridge says this, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And the bridge says this. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Brothers and sisters, the way in which Jesus leaves the 99 and chases down a string sheep isn't by kicking down doors or lighting up shadows. The way in which God pursues sinners is by the finished work of Jesus Christ, by his coming, by his sinless life, by his substitute death and resurrection, through the proclamation of the gospel 
and the effectual grace that works despite the relentless resistance of sinners. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, that authority, that authority is extended to the church to pursue straying sheep. And how we do it is through church discipline. God's love certainly is not reckless. Rather, it is a patient, loving, persevering process. God's love is not reckless, brothers and sisters. It is a patient, loving, persevering process. Look at verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18, which says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And in verse 18, again, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are four basic steps to be learned from this passage. Step number one, if a church member sins against you and the problem can be resolved between the two people by themselves and the case is closed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Second step, if it cannot be resolved, then the offended brother should bring two or three others. The two or three witnesses need to be able to affirm or confirm that indeed there is a significant verifiable offense and that the offender is indeed unrepentant. We'll get to more on the nature of the offenses later. Hopefully, involving other people will bring the offender to his senses or help the offended see that he should not be so offended. Both this step and the prior step may occur over several meetings, whatever the parties think is prudent, and that's step two. Step three, if the intervention of the two or three does not result in a solution, the offended party is then instructed to tell it to the church as according to Matthew eighteen seventeen. In our own congregation, this is typically done through the elders at the members' meeting. Uh, Since the Lord has given the church elders to provide oversight in all the church's affairs, as according to 1 Timothy 5.17, Hebrews 13.17, and 1 Peter 5.2. So normally, the elders will announce the name of the party charged with verifiable, significant, and unrepentant sin. They'll provide a brief description of the sin and the description determined to not cause others to stumble or to bring unattended embarrassment on any of the family members. So brief description of the sin. And typically, we will then give the congregation two months to seek out the sinner, to pray for that sinner, and to call him or her to repentance. That's step three. And the final step of church discipline is exclusion from the fellowship or membership of the church which essentially means exclusion from the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. He or she is to be treated as someone outside of God's covenant people, someone who should not partake of Christ's covenant meal, though I think he or she would be encouraged to continue to attend the church's gathering unless there are other reasons why they should not. So it's a long process. It's a patient process. Just to emphasize, again, a church isn't declaring with all certainty, 100% that someone is not a Christian when it removes him or her from the membership. Churches don't have a Holy Spirit x-ray vision, if you will, that can see somebody's heart. But what a church is saying in this final step of excommunicating, excommunioning someone from membership and Lord's table, Lord's Supper, through church membership, is we are no longer willing to publicly affirm their profession of faith that particular sin in your life which that person is refusing to let go of or are unrepentant of, 
is proof that they no longer want to be considered as a Christian and no longer desires to be part of the body. Okay, so that's Jesus' instruction, but it's also Apostle Paul's instruction too. Paul describes the process of church discipline in a number of places. You can just write it down and look it up later. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We read a portion of it uh, this afternoon. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.6. Galatians 6.1. Ephesians 5.11. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 2 Thessalonians 3.6-15. 1 Timothy 5.19-20. 2 Timothy 3, 5, and Titus 3, 9 through 11. For now, let's look at the most prominent passage. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. Again, it was our scripture reading that our sister Joanna read. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at it again. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5 says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this to be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan... For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then skip to verse 11, which says this. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, in verse 1, Paul confronts the church for tolerating a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Right? A church knows about the situation, but for some reason they're proud about it. Perhaps they thought that they were being loving by being tolerant. But Paul, in verse 2, says they should not be proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put this man who did this out of your fellowship? Here in this instance, Paul's process is much quicker than Jesus's. Paul doesn't tell them to warn the church. He simply announces judgment on the man and tells them to treat him no longer as a member of the church, but to hand him over to Satan. Then in verse 12, Paul even calls it as an act of judgment. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Okay, wait a minute now. What's going on here? What is this teaching us? It's teaching us that there's no one-size-fits-all process for church discipline. Each one needs to be handled carefully and wisely. Wisdom is needed in every situation differently. I love how Jonathan Lehman explains this passage in Rediscover Church. He says, 1 Corinthians 5 helps us to see the purpose of discipline. First, discipline exposes sin, according to verse 2, which, like cancer, loves to disguise itself. Second, discipline warns of a greater judgment to come, verse 5. Third, discipline rescues. It's the church's last resort when every other warning has been ignored, verse 5. 
Fourth, discipline protects other church members, just as cancer spreads from one cell to another, so sin quickly spreads from one person to another, verse 6. And fifth, discipline perseveres the church's witness when it begins to follow the ways of the world and of the culture. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, we get it. Church discipline still gets a bit of flack, even if you see it in Scripture. Many Christians may argue, isn't the Christian gospel about being saved and brought into the church not because of works, but because of faith? But here is an instance in Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament of kicking someone out of the church because of their works. Well, this moves us to our next question. Question three, why should churches discipline? Are you guys with me so far? Okay, so it's difficult to deny the biblical case for church discipline. It's very clear. You can't argue with it. No one will argue church discipline is unbiblical. No one, at least those who are thinking biblically, will oppose the necessity of church discipline. In our day, church discipline has become, however, a much neglected practice in the church. Why? Why do so few churches practice it in spite of its biblical basis? Why is it so controversial among Christians and churches? Is it too harsh, perhaps, you think? Is it unloving, ungracious? Some people would say, if God forgives sin, why do we need to practice church discipline? After all, didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest ye be judged? Isn't church discipline anti-evangelistic? The truth is, we can be convinced in our heads that Jesus gave us church discipline, yet we might still be afraid and very hesitant to follow Jesus' teachings because other instincts tells us discipline is unloving. So I want us to wrap our hearts around and our minds around understanding, is church discipline really loving? Well, the question that I want you to examine your hearts with as we think about this question is, are we thinking that we are more loving than Jesus is? Jesus says this is the way of love. And at times we think that we are more loving than Jesus himself. If you ever tried to discipline your first child uh, for the first time as a first-time parent, you may not know how to do it right, or you might be very hesitant about it. When I first disciplined my little Katie when she was a little child because she was being so bad, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing, (laughs) right? Ultimately, I want you to understand church discipline is good and necessary and biblical. Not only that, other objections on church discipline may be context-specific reasons. Why not to practice church discipline? Why they can't practice church discipline or supposed cultural barriers that, that people would come up with, excuses or reasons why church discipline is just impossible in my culture, in my context. For example, in Brazil, Christians and, and pastors say church discipline is too difficult because of the crucial role played by family structures. In South Africa, it's the tribal structures. In East Asia, it's the shame-honor culture that will destroy individuals and bring shame to families. That's what I used to think as I served in the Korean-American church. There's no way Korean churches could practice church discipline. In Hawaii, it's the easy-come, easy-go culture. In Washington, D.C., if you try to practice church discipline in the wrong way without the right proper procedures, they'll just sue you. So all sorts of people in every context will come up with some reason why church discipline is impossible. Well, what can we learn from this? First, people can always find good excuses not to obey God's word. Second, church discipline, as I said, is a hard thing to do. Third, we need to teach a biblical understanding of what love really is. So many people are just confused about what love is biblically because we are so wrapped up in what the world and culture teaches what love is. 
Because the irony is, the truth is, people are not unfamiliar with the concept of discipline at all in this world. People readily accept the fact that other organizations or groups must have some means of correcting or removing its members. A fraudulent lawyer can be disbarred. A volatile player in the NBA should be fined. A malpracticing doctor can lose his or her medical license. And abusive teachers should be fired. So then, again, ask yourself, is church discipline really loving? The world, and particularly our culture today, seems to have an entirely different understanding of love. Love wins is the mantra of our day, and that justifies whatever kind of lifestyle people want to champion for themselves. Listen to Lehman's reflections again. Love, according to our culture, empowers one to cast off your parents, your class, the church, traditional views of morality, even society as a whole, and it requires you to do what is right for you. They say love never judges. Love sets people free. Love is the final trump card, the argument to end all arguments, and the ultimate justification for doing whatever you most want to do. If they really love each other, then of course we should accept it. If God is loving, then surely he wouldn't. Dot, dot, dot. Love, or at least our definition of it, or the world's definition of it, or the culture's definition of it, is the one non-negotiable law. The world doesn't believe, ultimately, that God is love. But what the world actually believes is that love is God. That's the problem. Sadly, it's not just the culture out there, you see, that defines love this way. Far too often, so many Christians and Christian churches succumb to this worldly understanding of love. We'll stop for a moment and consider what the Bible says love is. You can write these verses down. 1 John 5, 3, which says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 10 through 11 says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, our churches need a radical reorientation of what love is and what Christ's love actually is. The Bible teaches that love leads to obedience and obedience is a sign of love. So we need to really examine ourselves. We need to really examine our churches. Are we obedient to God? Is our church obedient to God? That's a question worth asking and examining ourselves with. But there are more reasons. Remember Hebrews 12, 6 said, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Churches should practice discipline fundamentally because, because of God's love. Love for the sinner's sake. So discipline will expose sin that the sinner might come to repentance. We don't want our churches to encourage hypocrites who are hardened, even affirmed in their sins and lulled in their sins. Churches must practice church discipline for the good of the sinners amongst them. Moreover, churches should practice church discipline because of the love for other Christians' sake and the weaker Christians' sake. So discipline will warn others that they might not be led astray as they see the danger of sin playing out within their own body. In addition, churches should practice discipline because of love for the non-Christian neighbor's sake, that they might not receive a false view of Christianity through blatant hypocrisy. So many in our culture look at 
nominal Christians and false Christians and say, that is what a Christian is. And so much damage has been done because of a false witness that the churches have allowed in our churches. Practicing church discipline is for the good of the watching world's sake. Furthermore, churches should practice discipline because of the love for the church's sake. So discipline will present a good witness for Jesus. When churches are seen as conforming to the world, our evangelistic task becomes all the more difficult. In reality, undisciplined churches make it harder for people to hear the good news of the gospel. A failure to practice church discipline undermines the preaching, discipling, and evangelism ministry of the church. Discipline helps to draw the line between the church and the world. It clarifies the witness of the church and its power as a distinct countercultural community. It makes it more attractive to the world when the church is completely different from the world. So again, practice church discipline for the good of the corporate witness of the church in this darkened, fallen world. Lastly, love for Christ's sake. Discipline will protect Christ's name. Practice church discipline so that we would represent God's holy love in our personal lives and in our corporate lives together. Brothers and sisters, after all, isn't this the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of God's great love for undeserved sinners, the best news you will ever hear, that a perfectly sinless, obedient son, truly God and truly man, took upon himself the discipline, the punishment of God's wrath for our sins, for our failures. Jesus was nailed to the cross on our behalf as a substitute sacrificially so that our unrighteousness be placed on him and his righteousness granted to us for us to know God's redeeming love. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' death paid our debt completely with his life and by his death. But the good news, again, is that he didn't remain dead. He rose again on the third day, which meant that he defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that God's wrath was fully satiated. And Jesus invites all, everyone, anyone who would repent, that means to turn away from their sins and believe that Jesus died and rose again and trust in him with their whole lives. Jesus says, come, come all. You will experience new life on earth and eternal life with him when he returns on that final day. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. If you are here and you are not a Christian, this invitation is for you. No one else is coming for you. No one else is coming for you. No one else can forgive you of your sins. No amount of good works can merit such righteousness. This is a promise. This is an invitation that no other God can offer. Why? Because they're false gods. They're not real. The true God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, invites you. Come to me. Repent, believe, and trust in me. This moment, today, now, and forever. So friend, And visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we would love to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Talk to me at the close of service. I'll be standing right here. Pastor Jeremy will be standing outside. We would love to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, could we go on then as recipients of his his mercy and grace and ever make cheap his grace, allowing unrepentant sin to remain unaddressed and run rampant in our church? We cannot, we must not. Bobby Jameson says, love is not always nice, kindness is not always indulgent, and tolerance is not always a virtue. No is often the most loving thing a parent or a pastor or a church can say. Let me say that again. No 
is often the most loving thing a parent or a pastor or a church can say. And if that goes unheeded, then it is not cruel but loving to follow God's own example and obey God's own instructions by disciplining someone now in hopes that they would maybe be saved on the last day. Did you get, again, 1 Corinthians 1.5? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The reason why churches should practice church discipline is so that the sinner will repent and ultimately be saved on the last day. Discipline now is mercy and love for sinners. Because when Jesus returns, on that day of his return, there is no more mercy, only the sinner's rightful, just, and final judgment. Remember, the goal of discipline is always and ultimately restoration. The Congregationalist James sums it up well. He says this, The advantages of discipline are obvious. It reclaims backsliders, detects hypocrites, circulates salutary awe through the church, adds a further incentive to watchfulness and prayer, proves beyond question the fact and consequences of human frailty, and moreover publicly testifies against unrighteousness. Question four. I'm almost done. Seriously. Why is church discipline necessary? I want to point to two results. First, loving church discipline actually grows the church in love and holiness, just like correcting your own child's mistakes grows the child. So again, Hebrews 12, verses 10 through 11 says, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Because of discipline, we, the people of God, get to share in his holiness and later on, a harvest of righteousness and peace. That is what discipline produces, a growing holiness in the church. But not only that, secondly, it results in God's glory. That's what this is all about. First Peter 2, verses 11 through 12 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Churches should pray that we would revere his holiness more, that our lives individually and corporately would glorify him. So those questions are about understanding discipline. Let's move very quickly to the practical aspect. Question five, and these points are much shorter. When should our church require discipline? When should our church require discipline? Question five. The Bible provides no exhaustive list of which sins should lead to excommunication, but thinking theologically, one way to summarize the Bible's teaching is to say that formal church discipline is required only, again, in the case of verifiable, significant, and unrepentant sin. First, a sin must be outward and verifiable manifestation. It must be something that can be seen with the eyes and heard with the ears. Churches should not quickly uh, throw a red flag of ejection every time they suspect greed or, or pride in someone's heart. Nobody has Holy Spirit x-ray vision, you see. It has to be verifiable. It's not that sins of the heart are not serious. It's that the Lord knows that we cannot see one another's hearts and that the real problems will eventually rise to the surface anyway. So first is that it has to be verifiable. Second, a sin must be significant. For instance, I might observe a brother exaggerates the details of a story and then privately confront him over that matter. But even if he denies it, it probably wouldn't draw him in front of a church. 
Okay, why not? Well, something like the sin of embellishing stories is rooted in far more significant and unseen sins like idolatry or self-justification. Those are the sins I want to spend a personal time discussing with that person. Moreover, pursuing every tiny sin in a church's life will probably induce paranoia and produce a bunch of legalists, and we don't want to do that. That's not the goal of church discipline. Furthermore, there clearly needs to be a place for love to cover a multitude of sins in every congregation's life. So not every sin should be pursued to the utmost, and we have a bunch of policemen pointing people's sins out. That's not what we're after. Third, formal church discipline is the appropriate course of action when a sin is unrepentant. The person involved in a serious sin has been privately confronted with God's commands in Scripture, but he refuses to let the sin go. And from all appearances, the person prizes sin way more than Jesus. More or less, all three of these factors should be present before a church moves toward excommunication. Verifiable, significant, unrepentant. Question six, how quickly should a church act? Sometimes the process of discipline should move quite slowly. Most of the time, it should move slowly. In the case, for instance, when a sinner shows at least some interest in fighting against sin, it should move slow. It's not just the nature of sin that needs to be considered. It's the nature of the sinner himself. Different sinners, to put it bluntly, require different strategies. So Paul instructs us in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. You see, there's different categories of assessing the sinner and and the person who is struggling in sin. For example, there's a brother or maybe a number of brothers involved in a particular kind of addiction. We walked with such a brother for a long time through good times and bad because even in the worst times of addiction amidst the biggest failures, perhaps we discern that there's at least a tiny bit of fight for holiness in that brother. So we are patient with them. What does Isaiah say of Jesus, how Jesus will treat sinners? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. See, that's why we must look even for just a tiny bit of glow to that ember. Then you could fan it into flame. Fight, brother, fight, brother, and pray for that brother. Pursue that brother or sister in sin. Finally, question seven. Here it is. Is our church ready to discipline? Is our church ready to discipline? And this is the more very serious and important question. Over the last decades, our sending church, the church that we come from, had to remove a number of individuals from everything from adultery to public drunkenness, to wrongful divorce, to non-attendance, and more. Well, let it be clear, most discipline in our congregation should never reach the whole church body. That's the last step, okay? The vast majority is begun and ended privately between two individuals. That is our prayer. But the very important starting point in all of this is, if a church doesn't have a culture of discipleship, if members aren't accustomed to having open and real and honest relationships and conversations with one another, then a church probably isn't ready to practice formal church discipline. So my challenge to you all, when was the last time you invited your spouse or your friend or your pastor or your fellow church leader or fellow church member to offer and take loving criticism? Jonathan Lehman, again, says formal church discipline works best when members already know how to give and receive loving correction. They do it in their homes. They do it over lunches. They do it gently, carefully, and always with the good of the other person in mind. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, 
But a wise man listens to counsel. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to counsel. So dear brothers and sisters and members of NCBC, how can you help in this together? How can you help one another? Sin is deceitful. Sin is powerful. Sin is tempting and luring. So are you building relationships with other members of the church so that you can know them and that they can know you? Trust grows only in an environment of conversational humility and transparency. So are you working to be that kind of person who is easy to correct? Do you invite correction in your life and feedback in your life? If you're not, your friends and family members will quickly learn that correcting you is futile, even dangerous exercise, and they'll stop. How unprotected will you be if you become known as a person? Yeah, that person doesn't take feedback well. So my encouragement, invite people to get to know you. Invite critical feedback. Confess sin regularly. Risk even sometimes embarrassment. Be humble. Encourage others in their walk with Christ. Be willing to have those awkward conversations in which you gently and honestly challenge sin. When you and other members of your church live this way, the vast majority of church discipline will never travel beyond two or three people. The elders will never hear of it. The body will be working as it should, each part building up the body in love, as according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Brothers and sisters, is it a tragedy in the wake of the recent Me Too movement, Church Too movement, soon followed? Our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, had to face a reckoning as sexual abuse that had been hidden for years in many of our churches were exposed earlier this year. We believe that a church that practices discipline in a humble, loving, and responsible fashion and churches that move toward a biblical vision of the church should never need a Me Too or a Church Too movement in the first place. We need to be a church where abuse and sin have a harder time hiding and vulnerable members find the congregation's fellowship a safe place, the safest place of all. All of this is every member's job, not just the pastor's. Amen? Brothers and sisters, let me conclude. Is God's wisdom not wiser than man's wisdom? Is his love not more loving than our love? What a gift from God it is to have people in our lives to teach us and correct us, isn't it? Do you have people like that in your lives that love you enough to correct you and teach you? Thank the Lord for them. Well, there's more that I can say on this topic, but let me just read again Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11, and we'll be done. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen? The Baptist theologian J.L. Dagg said, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. So as you consider church discipline, consider Christ's endurance and love and example on our behalf, a shepherd that won't fend off the wolves will soon find his sheep consumed. So let us all be on guard for one another to protect the who and the what of the gospel together. Everything in our culture rages against any idea of correction or exclusion because it feels intolerant. But God means for his church to be trained, exercised, and disciplined so that we will share in his holiness and so that we would look more like Christ, his son, more like his followers. So brothers and sisters, pray that our church will glorify God in our holiness. Pray that we will proclaim and protect our witness as a church that honors and testifies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this reminder that you are a God who loves us, that you are truly a God who leaves the 99 to pursue the one straying sheep. Father, you did this to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who became man on our behalf to rescue sinners like us. Father, what a privilege and joy and honor that that authority has been given to the local church. Father, what a privilege and joy that it is that we have been given the responsibility to look out for fellow brothers and sisters through loving correction, through reminding them of the promise of your word, to remind them to look to you and not to the world. Father, what a gift it is that we could contemplate and meditate on what it means to be the church. We pray that New Covenant Baptist Church will continue to be established in these truths and grow in these truths that we would be entirely distinct from the world that we would honor you, that we would look more like Christ each and every single day, individually and as a church corporately. Thank you for your word. Bear much fruit through it in Jesus' name. Amen.